it's good to be back with you again. And uh, for those of you that weren't here the last time, let me give you kind of the, uh, the cold notes version of my introduction. My name's Ken Thiessen. I actually grew up in Chilliwack. Um, so I am uh, from the Valley. Um, I'm not a Canucks fan. And uh, last night I was cheering for the Flames and uh, they lost in a shootout. So I was disappointed. So there are some people who are going to struggle listening to me this morning. But... <laughs> But uh, no, it, I live in Regina now. I, uh, I uh, grew up at Broadway MB, uh, so I have a Mennonite background, uh, and I was a pastor for 20 years, a denominational leader for five years, and now I work with organizations, uh, churches and nonprofits and businesses in the area of consulting. So it is really good to be back with you and to have had uh, the opportunity to spend Friday night and all day Saturday with, uh, with some of your leadership team here. And, I woke up this morning, I'm, uh, Peter and Debbie are good friends of ours, so if you want to blame anybody for all of this, blame them, because we've gone back, what, over 20 years. <laughs> we have great friendships, and that was how the connection came, but I'm staying at their place, got up this morning, looked out, and I said, Brady, it's raining outside. He says, welcome to BC. And I said, yeah, it's minus 40 wind chill in Regina, but the sun is probably shining, and I'll take that. <laughs> so <laughs> I know some of you think I'm crazy, but that is who I am. I'm a big fan of open-wheel car racing, and... Um, you know, if I were to go back to Peter and Debbie's place at, after this service and I wanted to really unwind, I would uh, watch either an Indy car or a Formula One car race. And if I was home in Regina, I would do that and I would uh, do counted cross-stitch at the same time. Now, I know some of you are trying to wrap your head around that picture. Car racing, counted cross-stitch, counted cross-stitch, <laughs> car racing. <laughs> Um, I almost got my, a thrill of a lifetime a few years back when the Estevan Motor Speedway in southern Saskatchewan had what they call their faster pastor race. Pastors could enter to race a stock car around the track, and I said I almost got my thrill because the event got rained out, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> I just wanted to get in that stock car and race around the track. When it comes to the world of motorsport, Mercedes-Benz has, has a historic reputation of being one of the leaders in the development of race car engines. They've found a way to consistently be on the cutting edge in terms of their engine design, manufacturing, and performance. Several years ago, I saw an interview with the vice president of the race car division at Mercedes-Benz, and he was asked the secret to their perennial success. And he said this, his spontaneous response to the question manifested a deeply ingrained sense of Mercedes corporate mission, vision, and values. This is what he said. We live in the present, we're aware of our heritage, and we look to the future. Notice the perspective. Present, past, and then future. And as I've had the opportunity to reflect on that, I've come to the conclusion that this is a principle that applies not only in the world of motorsport, it's something that the Bible talks about as well. In fact, it was one of the guiding principles in the life of the Apostle Paul. Just as the world of motorsport is changing and evolving, so too is the world in which the church, Jericho Ridge Community Church, is called to minister. Our son Joel is Associate Professor of Sociology at Ambrose University in Calgary, and his area of focus and study is religion in Canada. He recently published a new book called The Meaning of Sunday, The Practice of Belief in a Secular Age. And in it, he outlines some of the significant shifts that have taken place in Canadian culture as it relates to faith, with a particular focus on the implications for churches, pastors, and church leaders. Whether we like it or not, we live in a very different world. A world that is different than when your church was founded in 2005. A church that's very different in 2016 than it was in 2005. 
There are some people who were here in 2005 who aren't here in 2016. There are some people who are here in 2016 who weren't here in 2005. Things can change. As a matter as a ch- as much as change is a reality in our world, there is a part of us that is resistant to change. If you don't believe that, just try sitting at somebody else's spot at your dinner table <laughs> and see what reaction you get. Now, I know that you don't struggle to change here. I mean, it would never happen here, but you know those other churches, you know, maybe Baptist churches, but not Mennonite Brethren churches. Well, in case you've forgotten, I grew up in a Mennonite Brethren church. I know your story, and it's no different than any other church's story. Maybe you've heard the Mennonite joke, how many Mennonites does it change, take to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> As a young teenager at Broadway MV in Chilliwack, I remember our youth pastor got raked over the coals because of his Sunday attire. He wore a dress, dress pants, a dress shirt, a suit jacket. He even wore a tie. There was only one problem. His shirt was not white. Can you believe it? The audacity to wear a colored shirt to church as a pastor. That wouldn't be the case at Broadway. I might even get away with preaching in jeans. But I was never allowed to wear jeans to church as a kid. <laughs> I had to wear a white starched collar that I still have scars around my neck. Because it was always one size too small. And a bow tie. Sometimes change is forced on us. And we have no choice as to whether or not we're going to change. And when change is forced on us. And we resist or accept it grudgingly, there's a tendency to look wistfully to the past and long for the good old days. What if Mercedes-Benz had taken that approach to race car engines? And what if they said, oh, for the good old days when race car engines were all mechanical moving parts with no computerized components that could malfunction at the most inopportune times for no good reason? They'd be left in the dust of their competitors and out of the race car division. The overarching principles of living in the present with an awareness of the heritage of the past, all the while keeping an eye on the future, work in the changing world of motorsport, then just maybe there's some point of application for us in the world of the church, for us as individual followers of Jesus. Today I want to invite you to take a look back, to acknowledge your present. And to take a look into the future and to keep things in perspective by exploring what the Apostle Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 3. When you take a look back at your life individually or your life as a church, what are the kinds of things that immediately come to mind? Is looking back a pleasant experience, a painful experience, or is it a mixture of both? Some would suggest that looking back is pointless. Why do we have to rehash all of that? Let the past be the past. I can imagine that when you were together for your 10th anniversary celebration as a congregation this past year, there were events in your past that you reminisced about with great fondness, perhaps wishing you could go back and relive those experiences. They probably evoked laughter, stories, and warm, sentimental thoughts and feelings. But as you look back, there are times in your history that are marked by heartache, grief, loss, and pain. And some of those feelings are still pretty fresh. That's true. That, that part of the story is true for every church. Some of that heartache, grief, loss, and pain came as a result of choices individuals or groups of individuals made that impacted your life as a congregation. 
Sometimes it was because of the mistakes that were made or decisions that you'd like to do over on. Some of it was just the fact of life. Life happens and it's not all a bed of roses. Sometimes it's just hard. If you were to reminisce about some of those painful periods in your history, it wouldn't surprise me if you wished that you could either go back and rewrite history, perhaps blot some of those experiences and parts of your story from your individual or to your collective memory. Looking back can have a valuable purpose if, and it's a big if, our look back is kept in perspective. I'm sure you've heard the saying, and we have a history teacher in our, in our, in our group here this morning, you know, what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. You've probably heard that, right, David? <laughs> the point is that oftentimes history repeats itself, and the important lessons of the past are missed, while the mistakes and pitfalls of the past are repeated time and time again. When we look back, whether that's individually or as a congregation, the portrait we see is always a collage mixed with joy and sadness, gratitude and regrets, successes and failures. As we look at Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we see Paul taking a look back over his life in Philippians 3, verses 5 to 6. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Here Paul reflects on his own spiritual heritage, his pursuit of God, his life accomplishments. Some of what Paul reflected on as he looked back brought him a sense of pride. Some brought him a profound sense of regret, I'm sure. As Paul looked back, he saw a spiritual heritage that, was, that demonstrated a deep commitment to and a fanatical pursuit of God. As he looked back over his life, he saw what many would have characterized as a model churchman. Observing Jewish law in virtually every respect, almost to perfection. A member of the elite of the religious establishments, the Pharisees. But he also saw his humble origins. Coming from one of the smallest tribes in Israel, albeit a tribe that was held in high esteem. And you get the very real sense that as Paul reflects back on his spiritual heritage, he does so with a certain sense, a legitimate sense of pride. However, it's interesting that Paul chooses to focus primarily on those things that others would hold up as important and noteworthy. Things that other would, others would see as status symbols. But that wasn't the sum total of Paul's life, looking back. Don't you wonder what must have been stirred up in him as he reflected on his persecution of the Christian church? Or his presence at the stoning of Stephen? Can you imagine how painful that look back might have been? Paul says nothing about having written off John Mark as an unworthy partner in the gospel and the sharp dispute that arose between Paul and Barnabas, causing them to go their separate ways. Scripture never indicates that they were ever reconciled or saw each other again. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were all a part of the same ministry team and there were relational tensions. They didn't get along, at least early on in their ministry partnership. Later, Paul was able to say that John Mark has been a help to me in my ministry. But there's no record that Paul and Barnabas ever reconciled. That was a part of Paul's look back. No matter how much he looked back on pride, with pride on his spiritual heritage, how could he deny 
the reality of these other less than stellar parts of his story. I suspect that some of those things may have haunted Paul as he looked back. And I can't help but wonder if Paul didn't reflect on how things might have been different. Even in his own spiritual journey, had he embraced the message of Jesus sooner. How life might have been different for the victims of, his per- of those who persecuted him. It's also interesting that as Paul takes a look back, he says nothing about the church plants, which were also a part of his heritage. Paul had been successful in starting a number of churches, some of which flourished and grew, others that struggled. And yet he mentions nothing of that. I don't know what to make of that, but I'm intrigued by it. I'd love to sit and talk with Paul and ask him, Paul, why didn't you talk more about some of those things? What did it feel like to look back on some of those successes and failures? What do you see when you take a look back, personally and as a congregation? What do you see in terms of what you or others would classify as your successes? What do you see in terms of what you or others would classify as your failures? What regrets do you have? What lessons have you learned? How have you seen God work? How would you like to have seen God work? What are some of the lessons you wish you'd learned? And maybe more importantly, what are some of the vows you made because of some of those experiences? When I take a look back at my life, I can't help but remember my grade 12 year in high school. I failed math 12, algebra, calculus, trigonometry, and all that other useless stuff. I went back to night school after grade 12, and I got a passing grade. Second highest mark in the class, but I made a vow. I will never darken the doorway of a school again other than for a visit. I was marked not by the fact that I had taken that class over and received the second highest mark in the class. I was marked by my failure, almost to the point of academic paralysis. Then God called me to ministry. And I knew that would mean going back to school for much more than a visit. I almost didn't respond to God's call because I was convinced it would be a prison sentence of sorts that I would fail all over But I did, and I remember my first class. It was a one-week module on the book of Ezekiel. The prof was talking about the Septuagint and the Pseudepigrapha and the JEDB theory, and I was completely lost. What gave me some comfort was that a seasoned pastor from Fort Gary, MD, who I met in the course, felt just as lost. His name was Dan Emerick. Many of you know him. But I got a B plus as a final grade in that class, and I was ecstatic. Then I went on to do (laughs) Dr. Passasil's Reformation history class, and I got a B minus, and I was profoundly disappointed. Then I hit seminary Hebrew, and all I could muster was a ton of blood, sweat, and tears was a C plus, and I was crushed. I know there are some of you who would have loved those marks. (laughs) There was a very real sense in which I was a prisoner to my past. Both my failures, for what I deemed to be failures, and my successes, both held me captive, locked in a time capsule. It's interesting that when I first met with your leadership team here via video conference, they had a number of questions, but the one question they never asked me was what my final grade was in seminary Hebrew. (laughs) They never asked me that question. It didn't matter. I took a bit of 
a number of counseling courses in, in, uh, in seminary, and that's where we met Peter and Debbie, which really helped me learn some valuable lessons. Perhaps the biggest lesson I learned was that if I was going to define my worth as a person by my academic successes or failures, then I was using a pretty shallow metric to, term, to determine my sense of worth. One of the things I had to learn was to embrace my past, the good parts of it and the not so good parts. I had to learn to take responsibility for those parts of my past that I was responsible for. But I wasn't willing to take responsible for, responsibility for those parts of my past that were legitimately mine to own. I was going to remain a prisoner to my past, probably living life in a victim mode, blaming others for it. I couldn't realistically blame Mr. McLeod for being a math teacher because I sat at the back of the class and I either slept or doodled the whole semester. <laughs> Was Mr. Turney a better math teacher than Mr. McLeod? Maybe. But I know I applied myself a whole lot more in Mr. Turney's class than I did in Mr. McLeod's class. So some questions for you to consider individually and as a congregation. What are some of the failures you gravitate to when you look back? as a person or as a church? What are some of the successes that you recall with wistful fondness? What are the vows, spoken or unspoken, that you've made as a result of your successes and or your failures, personally or collectively as a congregation? And perhaps more importantly, where can you take responsibility for your past? And where do you need to take responsibility for your past. And perhaps the most freeing thing is where do you need to let others take responsibility for their part of your past? Wouldn't it be good if we could take a look back and focus only on the positive, successful aspects of our past or how we defined us? But what if focusing on the successes was detrimental to your long-term well-being or more importantly, God's plan for you? Wouldn't it be good if we could take a look back and have no regrets or to be able to avoid the regrets or have more successes than regrets? You and I both know that as much as we'd like that, we can't continue to live in the past, nor can we ignore the past. My story is my story. Your story is your story, warts and all. And the more I'm able to embrace my story, warts and all, the more I can make better choices in the present related to how I respond to and view my story. We cannot focus only on the good aspects of the past, just like we cannot focus only on the failures of the past. We need to subject our past to a reality check. We need to put it in perspective. In his autobiography, The Tumult and the Shouting, the great sports columnist Grantland Rice once gave this advice about past mistakes. He says, because golf exposes the flaws of the human swing, a basically simple maneuver, it causes more self-torture than any game short of Russian roulette. And if you're golfers, you know that to be true. I have a nephew who is, you know, going to get a scholarship to study <laughs> in the U.S. to play golf, and I, mean, I admire this kid's mental toughness. But he says, the quicker the average golfer can forget the shot he's dubbed or knocked offline and concentrate on the next shot, the sooner he begins to improve and enjoy golf. Like life, golf can be humbling. However, little good comes over brooding over the mistakes we've made. The next shot in golf or life is the big one. He says, Walter Hagen, a dazzling ornament to the history of sport, had the soundest golf philosophy I've ever known. He said, he said more important, he said, that he replied, he said, Grant, I expect to make at least seven mistakes every round. Therefore, when I make a bad shot, I don't worry about it. It's just one of those seven. 
He says, I saw Hagen make 19 mistakes during one round in a North and South Open at Pinehurst in 1924. He finished with a 71, ultimately winning the tournament. A mistake meant nothing to him. Academy Award-winning actor Charlton Heston did not always get rave reviews. He said that he learned the most valuable single truth about criticism from Laurence Olivier. He said, we'd done a blank verse play on Broadway, and the blank verse was not Shakespeare. For a lot of us, that would be a good thing. <laughs> I never did like Shakespeare. <clears throat> he said, the critics slaughtered us. Before the opening night party, we were doomed. Forty minutes later, I found myself alone in a restaurant with Olivier and a bottle of brandy. He said, I was a young, green, and striving for mature detachment. He says, well, I said, philosophically, I suppose you learn how to forget the bad notices. Olivier gripped my elbow. Laddie, he said, what's much harder and far more important, you have to learn to forget the good ones. He was right. We cannot live in the regrets of yesterday. We cannot wallow in the failures of yesterday, nor can we live in the glory of the past. Our, re our look back must undergo a reality check. It must be put in perspective. To avoid that is to be chained in the past. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 7. He said, I once thought all of these things were so very important, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. As Paul takes a look back and as he reflects on, on what he used to think was important, on what others did think was important, and as he compares that with the profound encounter that he had with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, he says something quite profound. And if you translate it quite literally what Paul says, you know how much value I put on all that stuff that I used to think was of utmost importance? About as much value as I place on all of the contents of the sewage lagoon or the manure pile. For Paul, the Damascus Road experience, where the risen Christ encountered him in a personal way, stopped him dead in his tracks, blinded him physically, but brought him spiritual sight and insight, was an experience that changed his perspective and changed what he valued changed how he viewed his past failures but even more importantly it changed how he viewed his successes it changed how he measured success and failure circumstances and times sometimes have a way of helping us put things in perspective and we see that really clearly in paul's kind of reflection here from paul's perspective an encounter with jesus puts everything into perspective a very clear and a very different perspective as you take a look back over the 10 plus years that you've been involved in ministry as a congregation, how does your collective encounter with Jesus affect and shape your view of your past and your present? How does it affect the value you attach to things? How does it affect the way you measure success and failure? How does it affect what you devote your time, energy, and resources to? How does it impact the way you own your failures rather than deny them? Realizing that ultimately you're not defined by them. How does your encounter with Jesus impact the way in which you try to learn from your past rather than repeat it? As you take a look back at the years that God's given you on earth as an indi individual, how much does your encounter with Jesus shape and impact your view of your past? How does it affect and shape the value you attach to certain things today? How does it affect and influence what you devote your time, energy, and your resources to? Paul says that an encounter with Jesus 
will change the way in which we view the past. It will put things into perspective, and it can and it must serve as a reality check. In essence, what Paul says is, my encounter with Jesus completely changes how I view my past. It doesn't take my past away. It doesn't ask me to deny or ignore my heritage, but it does change how I view it. So here's another thing to note. Encounter with Jesus doesn't mean that your story will be pain-free from that point on. Paul's conflict with Barnabas and John Mark was a post-Jesus encounter reality. It happened after his Damascus Road experience. Paul was not the second coming of Jesus after that encounter and that he lived a sinless life. He made his share of mistakes after that encounter, but he was able to acknowledge them and take responsibility for his part of it and continue to be a profoundly effective follower of Jesus, exerting influence on the formation and the development of the early church. We've engaged in the strategic thinking and execution planning process this weekend. Your staff, elders, and implementation team have taken a look back. I don't believe they've done that without a deep desire to learn from the mistakes of the past. And a desire to build on the successes of the past, but not to be paralyzed by either the failures or become complacent because of the successes. They've been willing to take the hard look in the mirror to face the brutal facts and to acknowledge them for what they are. They've taken some concrete, tangible steps to address some of the issues that contributed to some of the pain of the past and to learn from the past. They've put in place some accountability structures and some metrics that will help you as a congregation guard against recklessly repeating mistakes, mistakes of the past. Here's one important key again. It doesn't matter who's in leadership moving forward. They're probably going to repeat some of the mistakes of the past. Not because they're bad people, because they're human. Any one of you were in leadership and you're not in leadership now moving forward, that would probably be true of you. You're not defined by your mistakes or what you deem to be mistakes. You're defined as children of God, dearly loved by God, who are called to do ministry together. To figure out what does it mean for me to love God? What does it mean for me to love other people? What does it mean for us to love God and love other people? Some days doing it really well, some days doing it okay and other days really messing it up. But you're loved no less. Worth no less on the days when you're really messing it up. For many of us, there are parts of our story that are nothing short of abuse. Not my fault for how somebody may have abused me, taken advantage of me, disrespected me. But it is my story, and the pain of those experiences are real. My encounter with Jesus doesn't suddenly erase it from my memory. I can't go back and change the story or erase the pain or the impact or the scars of the pain. What I can do is choose how I respond to that pain. How I choose to live in the present given my past. Richard Rohr says, if we don't learn to transform the pain, we'll transfer it. Nelson Mandela, whose story of abuse while imprisoned in South Africa is well do documented, said on the day he was released from prison, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I couldn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. I think there's a very practical lesson related to this that we can all identify, and it comes from the vehicle that you traveled in to get to church this morning. 
Notice the size of the windshield as compared to the size of the rearview mirror. Look at that slide up. Yeah, there it is. You know, the rearview mirror in every vehicle is a fraction of the size of the windshield. And perhaps there's a good reason for it. Can you imagine blacking out the windshield and driving just based on what you see in the rearview mirror? What would that be like? Saskatchewan, you might be okay. The roads are pretty flat and pretty straight, right? Try driving the Coquihalla or the old Fraser Canyon, you know, <laughs> doing that. <laughs> that would be a terrifying experience. You know, here's the reality is that oftentimes the way we live our lives individually as Christians and together as churches, we spend most of our time looking in the rearview mirror. And you know what? Whether it's a failure that you see in the rearview mirror or whether it's a huge success, who cares about the big snowbank that you just blew through in the rearview mirror if you're heading over a cliff looking forward? But you're so focused on, whoa, made it through there. Oops, all of a sudden you're in the ditch. What if you're so busy looking back that you miss the scenery? Paul says the ability to put our past into the context of the present will enable us to forget the past and look ahead. It's hard to leave the past behind, both the good aspects of it and the bad aspects of it. Oftentimes we're bound by it. Harry S. Truman said, men who live in the past remind me of a toy. He said, the toy is a small wooden bird called the flugy bird. Around the flugy bird's neck is a label reading, I fly backwards, I don't care where I'm going, I just want to see where I've been. Paul states that an encounter with Christ changes our focus from what's behind us and enables us to look what's at what's ahead of us. Listen to how Paul phrases it. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I am not all, still not all I should be, but I am focusing all of my energies on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us to heaven. Paul expresses the importance of com completely forgetting the past. Forgetting the past where, whose memory could paralyze a person or a congregation with guilt and despair. Forget, too, those successes achieved, the recollection of which might cause one to put life into neutral and say, let's just coast. We've arrived. We've got it now. Forget in such a way that the past, good or bad, would have no negative bearing on an individual or congregation's present spiritual growth or conduct or their ability to move into the future. Before I went into ministry, I was a commissioned salesperson. I learned a lesson as a commissioned salesperson. It didn't matter how good I did last month. Today was a new month, and I had to start all over again. It didn't matter how bad last month was. If I was paralyzed by that, I'd never, I'd never knock on anybody's door and go in and try and make a sale. There is a sense in which we cannot, nor should we, completely block the past from our memory. But we should put it in the context where it has no negative bearing on our present or our future spiritual growth and conduct. Paul says the purpose of forgetting the past, so we can take a look ahead. And what motivates Paul to look ahead he says, yes, everything else is worthless compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I may have Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. 
for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. As a result, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I can learn what it means to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so somehow I can experience the resurrection from the dead. Do you know what characterized Paul's life in the present as he penned those words? He was imprisoned for his proclamation of the gospel, being slandered by those who would call themselves Christians. Life was anything but rosy for Paul as he penned this. You can only imagine how easy it would have been for Paul to relive the past, to want to go back to those times where he was experiencing God's power, to go back and question, God, did I really hear you right on the road to Damascus? Paul says that no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what happens today, I'm looking ahead. I want to know Jesus better, Paul says. I want a righteousness that comes through faith in him. I want to know his power in my life today. And yes, I even want to share in his suffering. Why? Because I'm in a marathon race and I haven't reached the finish line yet. And until I reach the finish line, I'm going to keep looking ahead. No matter what Paul's past accomplishments, he wasn't satisfied and wouldn't be satisfied until he had reached the finish line and crossed it. A big part of what we did this weekend in the strategic thinking and execution planning session was to take a look back, to look at the present, but also to take a look into the future and to ask the question, given your heritage as a congregation, where does God want to take you as a congregation as you look to the future and you're going to discern his call? Now, some of you probably think, well, that must have been a boring weekend, but... We were taught, some of us who were a part of it, we talked, we had a lot of fun doing it, <laughs> and we worked hard. <laughs> Same is true for us as individuals, given where we've come from, our heritage, so to speak, given where we are today. Where does God want to take you as an individual as you look into the future? At the end of, I, I warned the group, you know, on Friday night, I said, you're going to be tired by the time we're done tomorrow afternoon, and they all said, yeah, we were tired. I said, weren't you, they said to me, Were you, weren't you wasted last night? I said, ah, she went out and had Got together with my family, had a great time. <laughs> it is hard work to take a look back, put it into perspective, and then to look into the future. That is hard work. And the question you face as a congregation, do you tweak what you've always done, thinking that that's what it's going to take to move forward? Do you live with a conscious awareness that God's called you to minister in a world that's different than it was 10 years ago? And what might actually be required is something a whole lot more than tweaking. What might be required is stopping doing some of the things that you've done or changing the way you've done things for all of the 10 years. If that's what God's calling you to, that will be hard. Because we develop attachments to some of the things that we're comfortable with and some of the things we're used to. But as the great theologian Tony Robbins said, if you always do what you've always done, you're going to get what you always got. <laughs> Sometimes what rec what's required is to learn new ways of doing things that help us connect to the changing world, much like Mercedes-Benz has had to keep changing and refining and revamping its race car engine as they turn. No matter how good the past is, no matter how good our present is, we can never rest on our laurels. Because as Paul says, we haven't crossed the finish line yet. We haven't figured out perfectly what does it mean to love God and love other people, which Jesus said was the main thing. We haven't figured that out as individuals, and we haven't figured it out perfectly as churches. And in Paul's ministry, he didn't have it all figured out neat and tidy either. If he had, you know, he and Barnabas would never have gotten to a fight. He would never have probably, you know, shot down John Mark. So a strategic thinking 
and an execution planning process provides an opportunity to look back, to acknowledge where you are in the present, and to ask the question, God, where do you want us to go in the future? There's a sense that when you do that with a depth of honesty and integrity, that it ought to stir in us a certain level of dissatisfaction with where we're at now, personally and collectively as a church. Without that, there's no incentive to move forward. If I'm not in some way dissatisfied with where I am, then why would I ever want to move from where I'm at? Now, in saying that, that's not to minimize, diminish, or discount the past, but it is to put all of that into the bigger perspective of the windshield, not the rearview mirror. If you look at how the, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about his own spiritual journey, you get a very clear sense that he was never settled in his own journey. He always wanted more. He recognized that his journey was not complete. There was more work that God wanted to do in him and needed to do in him. And because of that, he had to press on. Unless you're somewhat unsettled with where you're at, you'll be limited in your ability to take a look ahead. The more settled you are in the present, the more you'll be prone to want to continue to live in the present. A friend of mine sent me a Facebook picture yesterday. It was, a, it was a search committee for a church. And the caption underneath it was, Lord, please send us an innovative pastor who can help us stay exactly the way we are. <laughs> I figured, boy, doesn't that describe so much of our reality. If we are settled with where, we at, where we're at, it really limits our ability to look into the future. Or sometimes it drives us back and we want to return to the glory days of the past. There's something good and healthy about a holy restlessness with where we're at in the present that can propel us to move to new frontiers in the future as we collectively listen to God and discern his call. If you've enjoyed over 10 years of God's faithfulness in your ministry as a congregation, the world of 2005 when your congregation began is, was a very different world than 2016. What worked in 2005 probably won't work in 2016. Sometimes what worked in 2010 won't work in 2016. You live in the present. You must be aware of the rich heritage that has gone before you, but you must look to the future. Your look back must be tempered by the perspective of your look ahead, and that look ahead must be to what continues to motivate you and call you forward to something more, realizing that you have not yet reached maturity. You have not yet crossed the finish line. You have not yet become all God wants you to be. You've not yet heard him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I once heard the following quote, when a church fails to look outward and focuses inwardly on its own needs, it often begins to decline spiritually and numerically as well. Your congregation was founded on the vision of men and women who heard God's call, who dreamed God's dreams, and were willing to pay the price to follow that call and see that dream realized. There's a sense in which today you're at a, at a crossroads where there's a need for another generation of men and women among you to hear God's call, to dream his dream, to pay the price, to see that dream realized over the next 10, 20, or 30 years of your history. The call may be different than what it was 10 years ago. The dream will quite likely be different than the dream which captured the, the imagination of those who founded the church. The price you pay may be different. Sensing and embracing God's dream for the next 10, 20, or 30 years of your ministry together will only happen as collectively you live in the present, aware of your heritage, with your eyes firmly fixed on the future, the finish line that's yet ahead of you. May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister became the first man in history to run a mile in less than four minutes. Within two months, John Landy eclipsed the world record of one, by 1.4 seconds. And on August 7th in 1954, the two met at Empire Stadium here in Vancouver. 
for a historic race. As they moved into the last lap, Landy held the lead. It looked as if he would win, but as he neared the finish line, he was haunted by the question, where's Bannister? As he turned to look, Bannister took the lead and won the race. Later, uh, Landy told Time Magazine reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. What if Landy had been able to forget about Bannister and focus only on the finish line? How might that race have ended differently? As you reflect on a little more than 10 years of ministry, keep looking forward, forgetting what is behind, not from the standpoint of ignoring that reality, from the standpoint from that the past has no negative bearing on how you grow spiritually today, how you respond to God's call to you today, or where you go from here where the past has no negative bearing on your pursuing everything that God has for you. Paul ends verse 16 of chapter 3 by saying this, we must hold on to the progress we have in Christ. What the future holds for you as a congregation is unknown. But God's call to you is to press on to reach the finish line. You've not crossed it yet. It's still out there somewhere. The God who's been faithful in your past is faithful in your present and will be faithful into your future questions as I close. What's God saying to you individually about how you view your past, where you're at in the present, your perspective on the future? What's he saying to you collectively as a body? And then what do you need to do in response to that? The past is behind. Learn from it. The future is ahead. Prepare for it. The present is here. Live in it. I told, I was talking with Brad about what I was going to talk about, he said, Ken, would communion be a good way to end? I said, I said, communion is perfect. Each one of us has a past. Everyone has a failure story. We all do. Let's not pretend we don't. The encounter with Jesus puts that into a different perspective. Whatever my failures are, whatever your failures are, whatever my successes are, whatever your successes are, whatever your collective failures and successes are. Most often we're bound by our past failures. And if we've embraced Jesus, the elements of communion remind us that Jesus says, I've dealt with the past. I've dealt with the past. You don't have to live there anymore. You don't have to live there doing something new here pain is a part of your story parts of it you'd want to go back and rewrite but i can tell you that from the time i was here in september to what we went through on friday night and yesterday there's a very different attitude and an openness and gratitude in heart that is very very good and special my prayer for you as a congregation is and your you as individuals is that you would hear afresh god's call to you that your eyes would be open to his dream and his vision for your future. And that you would be willing to respond to that call for the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom here in Langley and around the world. As you live out the purpose that he's called for you to reach in everything that you do. sharing with us. I'm going to invite our uh, Ron and the team to come and we're going to move to a time of response in communion.
And one of the clearest pictures that we have in the New Testament of that really sums up this notion of the past and the present and the future is the communion story and is that picture for us of what Jesus did for us. That his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And when we are reminded and instructed about communion in the New Testament, it says when you do this, you are also declaring the Lord's work. You're looking back, but in the present, you're making a statement about your own connectivity with Christ and your own desire to walk in obedience to him. And it's a statement that also anticipates the Lord's return, past, present, and future. And so Howard and Kara is going to make their way to this table and will serve. I invite you to stand with me. Uh, Katie will be available and Allie will be available as members of our prayer team at the side. And if you'd like to spend any time, just even before you move to the communion table, just saying, there's something that's on my heart, either something from my past that I feel like that I just need to tend to in this way today, and would you pray for me in that, then we'd be more than welcome to pray for you about that. If there's something going on in your life in the present, you say, I have a need that I want to express, and I want someone to stand with me in prayer. They would love to do that with you. So let's stand together, and our practice here at Jericho is just when you feel that you're ready, and as these two songs are sung, and Ron and the team leads us, then you can make your way to either table, and you can either partake right there, or you can take it back to your seat with you and uh, just spend time as you feel like you're ready and move into this celebration of what it is that God's done for us.
see the wicked prospering, when I feel I have no voice to sing, even in the want I'll follow you, even in the want I'll follow you. I believe everything that you say so far from home and you lead me somewhere I don't want to go even in my death I'll follow you even in my death I'll follow you when I come to end this race I ran and I receive the prize that Christ has won I will be with you in pain benediction from Philippians chapter 3. We don't say this because we have already achieved these things or because we've reached perfection, but we press on to that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed us. Brothers and sisters, we have not achieved it, but we focus on this one thing, forgetting the and looking forward to what lies ahead, we press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. He who called us is faithful. Let's continue to press on. As you go through this week, the team will continue to sing. You're dismissed, and we'd invite you to, if you'd like to stay and continue to worship, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to converse with others, just move to the sides and we'll know that you're here. Thanks for being with us again.